Reading will be from 1 Samuel chapter 3. 1 Samuel 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli. And the word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. And it happened at that time, as Eli was lying down in his place, now his eyesight had begun, begun to grow dim and he could not see well, and the lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. That the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. Then he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called yet again, Samuel. So Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he answered, I did not call. My son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord yet been revealed to him. So the Lord called Samuel again for the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli discerned that the Lord was calling the boy. And Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and it shall be, if he calls you, that you will, shall say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Then the Lord came and stood and called, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for thy servant is listening. And we'll pray. Lord Jesus, I do thank you for your word again. And, and God, we know that these things are all here, that we might know you and that you would be worshipped in spirit and truth within each of our hearts. And so, God, I just pray that, that we would just um, be instructed by you and that our hearts would be yielded to you in obedience and faith for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Scripture says that man um, does not know his way, but the Lord orders his steps. In the book of Proverbs. For that reason, man does not know his way, but the Lord orders his steps. It's not always easy to give an explanation for why we are where we are in our lives, how God has worked. We can look back and see that God has ordered our steps. But if somebody were to say, how did you come to be in this position, this job, whatever, um, whether it's secular or ministry, a lot of times we just so have to just say, I didn't plan it. it. It just seemed to happen. As I look back, these different circumstances fell into place. So the Lord led in this way. I couldn't even tell he was leading at the time. That is the nature of, of God being in control of our lives and, and him being um, sovereign and working in us for his glory. But there are always particular things that God does, and it's those here. This is a chapter on the calling of God in Samuel's life. And though God has called him, there are particular things that God is doing and has done to, to bring um, Samuel to this point. We have to remember that this is a time of the judges, the end of the time of the judges. And again, as I've said before, everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. 
So when this chapter begins, it says the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli. We've already seen that seems to be the characteristic of his life. And, and he's been ministering before the Lord and worshiping God since the day that his mother dropped him off at the temple. At this point, we don't know for sure how old he is. Josephus, the Jewish historian, said he was 12 years old. Others believe he may have been a little bit older, 13, 14, maybe even 15 years old. But he's still a boy. And it says, And the word of the Lord was rare in those days, and visions were infrequent. We shouldn't be surprised. Why would God bother to be revealing himself through his word when the basic disposition of the people at this time is to do as they think is right in their own eyes. God doesn't typically waste his words. And if people aren't going to listen, he's not going to shout. And so people are not receiving the word of God because people aren't interested in the word of God. They're interested in doing what they want to do. And what word God has given, they have twisted it, interpreted it, ignored it, so that they can each do what they think is right and not what God thinks is right. So there are few visions, and the word of God is rare. I want to look at a, briefly a cross-reference here um, and not spend too long on it, but I feel it's an important verse as a cross-reference in, in Proverbs 29, verse 18. It says, Where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained, but happy is he who keeps the law. A few years back, I did a short series on, on verses that are often mishandled, and this was one of those verses that I spoke about. Some of your translations say, Where there is no vision, the people perish. The New American Standard says, Where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained. And that's often used as um, a, a proof text for saying every person should have a vision statement for his life. Every ministry should have a vision statement. And I personally feel that what we're saying in that is basically we've just borrowed from the corporate world and we're trying to bring it into the church. That's me. Because this is not about vision statements for directing a ministry. Because it says where there is no vision or marginal reference where there is no revelation, the people are unrestrained. And then that second half of the verse, but happy is he who keeps the law. The parallelism to a lack of vision is disobedience to God's word. God, the beginning point for, for knowing what God wants for us is his word. And if people are not living in responsiveness to God's word, then they're not going to know God's will for their lives is basically what he's saying. This is not about coming up with a vision statement and then saying, okay, everybody, come on board and follow our vision. This is the vision for the church. And to be in this church, you need to be on board with the vision. We sing the hymn, Jesus is our vision. Be thou, O Lord, our vision. And that he is the vision. He is the head. He is the one we are to fix our eyes on. We don't fix our eyes on a purpose statement. We fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we do that, he will be free to direct the various members of his body as he chooses to do so. And so then we look back and go, man, that's amazing what God orchestrated. We could have never planned it. But individuals were responding to the word of God and to Jesus, the head of the church. 
And in doing so, the people were, were not unrestrained, but they were being restrained by Christ and his word. And so that's the whole gist of it. And that fits with what's going on here in the days of the judges. People are not paying attention to what God has said in his word, or they're using the word in order to do what they want to do. And in consequence, God isn't speaking. God doesn't seem to be directing. So when God speaks to Samuel, this is an indictment on Eli and the priesthood. And Eli knew it. God is, is, he has reached a point where you're saying the priesthood is unresponsive. They were the people who were supposed to be directing the people, providing vision based upon the word of God. Not vision statements, not purpose statements, but opening people's eyes to God through his word that they might follow God. They were the teachers, the handlers of scripture, and they had reneged on their responsibilities. And now God's saying, I'm going to raise up a prophet. And I'm going to later raise up kings. And through the prophets and kings, rather than the priesthood, God begins to give the spiritual direction to the people, principally the prophets, that he had always wanted the priest to fulfill. So this is a major indictment on the priesthood. God is raising up a prophet, but we also need to understand He is not a substitute for God himself. And God never intended that the people put their trust in men. So it says in verse 2, And it happened at that time as Eli was lying down in his place, his eyesight had begun to grow dim, he's getting old, he couldn't see well, and the lamp of God had not yet gone out. Some believe there's a double reference there, the lamp of God meaning literally the lamp that was in the temple. Um, that candelabra that had the seven different um, 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 candles on it. And it had not yet gone out for the night, meaning this is probably in the early hours of the morning um, when God spoke to Samuel. It may also be a reference to Eli, that he, in a sense, as priest, has been functioning as the lamp of the Lord to the people, though he has not been providing any light because of the way that he has been living. That God called Samuel, verse 4. And Samuel said, here I am. Didn't know it was God calling, but he responds, responds in availability and responsiveness to the Lord. He ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. He said, I didn't call you. Go lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called yet again, Samuel. So Samuel rose and went to Eli. He did it three times. And then finally, Samuel will say, speak, Lord. Verse 7, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord yet been revealed to him. I personally don't think this means that he was not yet saved. I think it means that though saved, he had not been functioning as a prophet. This is God's calling upon his life, I think, not for salvation, but for a role of serving the nation before God as a prophet. So he had not been hearing from God as a prophet does, though he was already, as we've seen, in a relationship with God wherein he was worshiping God and ministering before the Lord. So the Lord called him a third time, and Eli finally discerned that it was God speaking. And so the next time God 
said, repeated Samuel, Samuel. So there seems to be some urgency in verse 10. And Samuel says, speak, for thy servant is listening. And then the Lord says, I'm about to do something which is going to cause the ears of everyone here who hears it, their ears to tingle. In that day, I will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew, because his sons brought a curse on themselves, and he did not rebuke them. You recall from last week, it actually in the text does say that Samuel, I'm sorry, that Eli rebuked his sons, but that he did not change their behavior. He didn't discipline them. He didn't correct them. He called them out. Why are you doing what you're doing with the women at the temple? Though he didn't say anything to the sons about what they were doing with the sacrifices. So it may be either God is saying he did not rebuke him, meaning he didn't say anything about their abuse of the sacrificial system. Or it may be the idea he did not rebuke them, that his words didn't follow up with actual action. And so there's merely words. There was no correction to them. And you recall that as God put his finger on what the real problem was, he says, you honor your sons ahead of me. And the point that I tried to make last week with that is that whenever there is, with our children, if they are living in rebellion and sin against God, and we somehow, it, we, we, in our love for them, in the grace that we want to show to them, if what is being communicated to them is that it really isn't that bad. When God says, this needs to change, this must change, this is sin. And it's a hard, I, I can't even understand, uh, personally can't begin to imagine how difficult it is to be in that position. But the Lord is saying, when God says it is sin and it must be punished, and we say something else, or we are trying to preserve our children from what God is wanting to bring into their life, whether it's discipline or whether it's something else, then we are honoring our children ahead of God. It's a serious problem. So God says that he is bringing a curse on them. Verse 14, I have sworn in the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. The priest was in a very unique position in his role. He was essentially an intercessor for the nation. In Jesus' role as priest, the devil came to him in the wilderness and said, If you are really the Son of God, throw yourself down from this temple. And the angels will come and bear you up, lest your foot strike a stone. Why would that be sin? And it was in his role as priest that he was being tempted. In his role as king, the devil said, here's all the nations of the world. You can have them. Just bow down and worship me. In his role as prophet, the devil said, speak to these rocks. And they will turn to stone. Turn, the rocks will turn to bread. A prophet speaks from God. He doesn't speak on his own behalf. The king is to be under the king, under the Lord, not ruling from it for his own personal gain. And the priest is one who intercedes on behalf of, not one who calls upon angels to intercede for him. Throw yourself off and the angels will come and intercede on your behalf. 
The prophet is the intercessor. But when the prophet's life is filled with sin and rebellion against God, I'm sorry, the priest, when the priest's life is filled with sin and rebellion against God, how can he intercede for others? There's no intercession that he can give on behalf of another. He needs to be interceded for. That's why Jesus is the perfect high priest, because he does not need to be interceded for because he is without sin. But Eli, in countenancing the sin of his sons, he himself is guilty of their sin, and they have negated the ministry of intercession that God wants to have through them. They have nullified what the Lord raised them up for. And it seems as though God is saying, there's nothing more I can do for you, with you, because you have refused your role as intercessor, and now there is no one to intercede for you. The house shall be removed from you forever, and there is nothing to atone for you. So Samuel lay down until morning, and then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. It doesn't say Samuel went back to sleep, does it? I imagine it was a sleepless night for the rest of the night for this boy. And then he did his duty and he opened the doors of the house of the Lord as he would every morning. But Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And he said, what is the word that he spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all the words that he spoke to you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, this is Eli speaking, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Thus Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fail. And all Israel, from Dan, the northernmost part of Israel, even to Beersheba, the southernmost part, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Why was God revealing himself to Samuel and not to Eli? Because he found a man that would listen. He found a man that would obey. Still a boy, but he would listen and he would obey. Why does God reveal himself to people today? Because they listen and because they obey. I personally am convinced that many of the times that we go through times when God seems to be silent, it has more to do with us than it has to be with God. Not always, and I don't believe that we should go looking for visions and voices from heaven. But I know that God wants, he is, we are in a living, vital relationship with him. And he does want to communicate to us, to speak to us, to lead us. And there are times when it seems to be all silence. And the fault is not an unwillingness on the part of God. But rather our hearts not being willing to do what God says. This is why I found in my own prayer life, facing various decisions and things, many times the, the one single thing that God is after is just to come to that place of abandonment and saying, truly, from the heart, thy will be done, not my will. And when, when finally 
It is that place where I can take my hands off of it and say it just doesn't matter except that your will be done, that it seems to be God speaks. So I want to just think through some of the things that we're seeing here. Because again, God directs our steps and man does not understand his way. So what is it that God is doing? And why this boy? One of the things that I see about Eli, I'm sorry, young Samuel, is that he was true. Person of integrity. He was true in that he was concerned with what was given him to do by Eli as being from God. He served Eli and he served God. Eli and his sons were not Samuel's problem. And he understood that. He lived true to God and true to what God had placed into his life. He doesn't assume responsibility or a role not given to him. Neither does he back away from what is placed on him. Speak to Eli. And he did. He is a true servant with no will of his own except to please his master. He is loyal to both Eli and to God. True to them both. He doesn't seek to undermine Eli or to usurp him. He loved Eli. Grieved him to hear what God had to say. He wanted no harm to come to him, including even the emotional pain of hearing that he was going to lose his sons. But in loyalty and in love, he also spoke the truth to Eli, as directed by God and Eli to do so. And for Eli's part, it's actually pretty amazing, as dull as he seems to be, He's not threatened by Samuel. Eli was not so dull as to miss the point that God is rejecting him in favor of this boy that lives in his house. But he never was threatened by Samuel. He didn't turn against Samuel. Not like Saul that turned against David. Lesser men attack greater men. Samuel, Eli, I'm sorry, for all of his faults, never attacked Samuel when he saw that God was raising him up in a sense to replace him. In this chapter, we see that before Samuel is called by God, he is available, he is serving, and he is obedient. How do you get to here without going through the steps? And again, God doesn't do shortcuts. And this boy has been groomed and prepared along the way before he gets to the point where God says, Samuel, Samuel. Availability, a servant heart, and obedience. Nothing's changed. That relationship, vital, personal relationship with God today sometimes has to begin with just the duty of doing what God's put before us, as unto the Lord. Whether he speaks to us, whether he ever breaks in to our worlds and shows himself personally or not, 
We know what he's given us. And we serve faithfully before him, available to him, in obedience to him, whether we ever hear him or see him or not. Because this is what he's given us. And that's how this boy lived. I have to say that, that um, well, I'll move on before I do that. In response to his availability, servant heart, in obedience to the Lord, God calls him. Because this is a man who's listening. A man who is faithful. Young boy. But the heart that God is looking for. And God speaks to him. Because he could see a pattern of faithfulness in his life. Where he can trust this boy with what he wants to say. God raises him up as a prophet. God confirms his choice of him by not letting any of his words fail. And the rest of his life is spent living in that distinction that gives glory and honor to God. Servant of God, prophet of God, called by God, available to God, obedient to God, confirmed by God, and distinct unto God. These are all things that characterize Samuel's life. Briefly, because I know this, this, the application of this can be where the problems are. How does this apply to us today? And the principal issue is that of prophecy. Even in Samuel's day, and I think this has been something that we just haven't um, clearly understood, the role of the prophet was not principally to tell the future. But rather, God raised up prophets to speak into the moral order of the day. To give correction, instruction, reproof. All the things that the word of God is supposed to do in our lives. God was raising up the prophets to handle God's word rightly. What God said in his word is what they were teaching. So as just as we see in the scripture, God has given scripture. And all scripture is prof for teaching, for exhortation, for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness. That is in essence the role of the prophet in the Old Testament. Because the priest had reneged on that role. God raised up the prophet to do on the basis of his word what he wanted the priest to do. And so even today there's a sense, I believe, in which we all are prophets. We are under God's word to be instructed by God's word and to be speaking God's word into the lives of others. We are not looking for new revelations from God. Even the prophet in the Old Testament was simply responding to what God had said. Past tense. Not looking for new revelations from God. And all the more so for us, because we know that the canon of Scripture is complete. And there is nothing that God would say today that would take the place of the written word of God. And if he never spoke again... What he has said is what we need. And anything that he would say today would be absolutely consistent with what is already written in Scripture. And the Scripture is the authority for testing anything that we think God may be saying today. That cannot be reversed. A calling today. I believe that God calls people to specific ministries, to specific tasks. But again, it troubles me, I think we all of us have seen this, when people's 
calling that they believe that they have upon their lives takes first place, takes precedent over Jesus himself. And that vocational calling, that understanding of mission, becomes the main thing and even becomes the focus for for trying to usher other people into the same mission that maybe God has given one individual and somehow that's supposed to become the mission and the calling for everybody else. Our calling is first and foremost to Jesus Christ. And nothing should take precedence, preeminence over him. We should never let a special calling, a passion, anything to take the place of Christ first and foremost. Vision today, as I've already alluded to from Proverbs, it is not foremost about vision statements and purpose statements, but rather about the Word of God. Gaining clarity on life and on the decisions that we face based upon what God has said in His Word. That is the vision God wants us to have. I'm not a strong visionary type of person, and I am not against those who are. I secretly wish I were more like them. I feel like I would be a better leader if I were more visionary. I have one or more books in my office on vision, casting visions, visioneering, um, and I have known several people who are very gifted in that area. I remember, uh, I also have to say that, that you know, I talked to one guy one time and, and all into vision and stuff, and I was saying, do you know, can you, or do you know any church that has grown um, big and fast without a vision statement? And he goes, they don't exist. Never known of one. Okay. And I, you know, I, I don't, again, anecdotal evidence is, is basically worthless. But what I've seen in my limited experience is those who are casting visions and living by visions, there is this almost inordinate drive at, that they feel that others need to come along or somehow their vision is not from God. And so other people to get in step validates them personally. And so all this energy often is expended in trying to promote a vision. And we're not talking about Jesus anymore. We're not talking that he's the head of the church. And how does he want us individually and corporately to respond to him? But the church can be so focused on fulfilling a particular vision that it's not letting God be God in the church. And work individually to his glory in people's hearts and minds and lives. And you can only sustain that for so long. And I've known a couple different men that just get so worn out with trying to sustain their vision. They finally just bail on the whole thing. Commit adultery and walk away from the ministry. Just can't be sustained. Where's me out thinking about it? I'm not all that surprised when they finally just say, had it, can't, can't sustain it. I don't believe God ever wanted us to try to sustain vision statements. Jesus is our vision. Christ is our vision. Responding to him. And that's not to say that God's not going to give particular direction to a church and to an individual. But that particular direction should never take ascendancy over Christ himself. In every generation, the people of God 
if they are following God, available to God, responsive to God, serving God, obedient to God, they don't have to choose to be distinctive. Everything about them is going to scream alien, stranger. Because God is setting them apart. And again, when an individual Christian or a, or a church is spending all of its effort trying to be like the culture in order to reach the culture and not offend the culture, we have things backwards. We are a peculiar people, a distinct people, strangers upon this earth, which is not our home because our citizenship is in heaven. I, I've, honestly, when I go up to, to Pennsylvania and see the Amish, like everybody else that goes up there, hundreds of thousands of people that go every year to stare at the Amish, they are a peculiar people. But there is a sense in which they did not set out to be peculiar. They set out to be obedient to what they believe the Lord was saying in their lives. And as culture changes, they get stranger and stranger. But you know, that very distinctiveness is a draw. And hundreds of thousands of people drive around their farms every year to see how weird they are. And like it or not, that very distinctiveness is giving them an opportunity to speak of their faith, if they have one, that they would have never had if they hadn't been so strange. That's the way God works. And I'm not talking about us all doing our laundry on clotheslines on Monday afternoon or whatever they do. You know, they have their wash day. And, but it's, it's, a, it's a values. It's, our, it's, it's what drives us, moves us, motivates us. Is it Christ? Is what is true of him, true of us? Are we spending so much time being worried that we'd be offend somebody who might want to come to our church, but they're afraid to come to our church because the preacher wears a tie or something? And I'm going, you know, maybe I should stop wearing a tie. I don't know. It's the only time I dress up. Weddings, funerals, and coming to church, you know? A lot of you men wear ties every day, and I understand you don't want to wear a tie anymore when you, when you, one day a week. But it's just, I don't think I'm being personally legalistic. And if, you, if it should keep somebody else from coming to church because I wear a tie when I preach, then I'm bothered by that. But is the issue when it comes to values and homosexuality and, and, and whatever it is, and we're so afraid that we might offend, and so we get as close, as close, as close as we can without forsaking Jesus. And I go, how is that different than what Eli was doing with his sons? That we, he never, Eli never forsook God. But God says, you honor your sons more than you honor me. And I feel like we honor culture many times more than we honor God. How are we reaching that culture? How are we changing that culture when we bend over backwards not to be offensive or to somehow push away the people that we love who are not the Lord's, as Eli seemed to be doing with his own sons? When we say yes to Jesus every day in all the details of life, we are not choosing to be distinctive, but it's going to happen. Choose it or not.
And God is the one who confirms that we are His. We don't have to go about trying to prove anything to anybody. God does it. It's one of the resting points for the Christian. I don't have to prove myself to anybody. Live before the Lord. Respond to the Lord. And God will set us apart and He will prove Himself in our lives without us ever trying to do anything. I want to just make a couple comments about hearing from God. I am no expert on this by any means. Um, I'm still learning, and I'm sure get it wrong. No doubt about it. I am of the persuasion, as you've heard me say before, that God is a personal God, and He speaks to us through His Word and by His Spirit. And I believe that the Spirit of God, as I've already said, will never contradict His Word. And in everything that I think God is saying, it has to be put in submission to the written Word of God. And God will never, ever tell me to do anything that is contrary to this book. I believe that with all my heart. But I believe that He speaks to us. I believe that He is a speaking God. And that by the Spirit of God, He speaks to the spirits of men and women. And we can be led by God. I believe He's concerned with every detail of our lives. And that's why He works all things together for good. Because God is concerned about all things. A number of years ago, when I was still in seminary, um, a man named Gary Friesen wrote a book called Decision Making in the Will of God. And in many respects, tremendous book. He said that basically there is a circle called the permissive will of God. And as long as you are operating within that circle, which means within the confines of Scripture as I understand him, you can basically do whatever you want, and it'll be fine. I believe that there are things that are, we would call the permissive will of God. But it, it seems to me, in reading the book, he was saying God doesn't care about anything within that permissive will. No sense praying about it. It just doesn't matter. That, I think, is an error. Because I personally believe every single aspect of my life. I've seen too many cases where God is directing all the steps of my life to think that there's anything that is incidental or of no consequence to God. He's an amazing God. But I would say, having acknowledged that Scripture is the authority and acknowledging that God speaks to His people today, I would be quick to say, dreams, visions, impressions, anything else we want to call them, you should assume it is not from God. I think Eli was actually doing the right thing when he was just saying to the boy, go back to sleep. And it was only after it happened three times that he said, God's probably speaking to you. It is best to be hesitant. It is best to be humble enough to say, I'm not sure it is God. To be slow to embrace every impression, vision, dream as being from God. You try to analyze all your dreams and you would go insane. Thinking that every time I have a dream it's God speaking to me? I don't think so. I'm not uncomfortable with saying you could go your entire life 
and never once have a dream that was God speaking to you. And there's nothing wrong. God speaks through his word. But he could, I believe, speak to us in a dream. Sometimes I believe he makes, he heavily impresses things upon us. And he wants us to respond to those things. Even though we can't fully articulate why we feel the way we do. But we should be very cautious and not too quick to assume that all of these impressions are from God. If it is from God, the word of God will match up. It will not violate God's word. If it is from God, our motive will be to glorify God. It is not about us getting glory. It's not about our will being done. It's about God's will being done. God being glorified. And secondly, the motive will be to minister to others. To see God's glory and good. So when the impression that you have is from God, it will not violate God's word. It will result in the glory of God, and it will be for the good of others. If it's just for my good, it's probably not... I mean, I need to be careful. It may not be from God. Because all I'm doing is thinking about myself. It's amazing how many people's personal visions and words and prophecies are all about what's good for them. And never about what God's correcting in their lives. God will correct us. I don't hear much of that when people talk about words from God. The word of God will be properly handled. Not finding a verse that just backs up what I wanted to say, but properly handled. And, it, and God will be glorified, and others will be ministered to. The act itself, the decision itself, will be consistent with the nature of God. And there is a place for consensus, where the people of God say, it seemed good to the Lord and to us. As the church of Antioch said, when they were setting aside Paul and Silas. As Paul and his traveling companions said when they received the Macedonian vision about going across into Philippi. It seemed good to the Lord and to us. There is a place for consensus. Also, I would say the word of God does not speak to every particular situation in specifics. But it does, I believe, speak to every situation, at least in generalities. I don't think there's anything that we're going to go through in life that some way God hasn't spoken to. That doesn't mean that I'm going to find verses in the Bible about what color I should paint my car or whether I should get the hell damage fixed. But there are verses in the Bible that would speak about why I'm doing what I'm doing, whether I should spend money that I don't have, go into debt, whatever. There are many different things in Scripture that will bear on the decisions that I make, though the particular decision itself may not be in Scripture. So the Word of God doesn't speak to every particular situation in detail. And we need to acknowledge that we can misconstrue God's leading even when we are most sure of it. Therefore, we should be very circumspect about claiming to hear from God. 
Third, God's leading, his will, doesn't always mean that the end result is easy. We can, I know a church, for example, that very, very prayerfully, after much deliberation, was of one mind that they should hire a particular man as a pastor. And they only had a very short honeymoon, and it went downhill fast. And after about five years, they couldn't get rid of each other fast enough. But I very much appreciate the leadership of that church. I'm being a little facetious when I say they couldn't get rid of each other fast enough. There was a lot of hurt and a lot of pain. But I appreciate the leadership of that church because I was told, we are firmly committed to this man. And we do not believe just because it's been hard we made a mistake. We believe God brought this man here. And we believe that God is using the difficulties of this relationship to expose things and to bring things out in this church that needed to be exposed, that God needed to address. And this was God's tool for growing us, maturing us, refining us, purifying us in ways that God couldn't have done if he'd brought in with the world what we would normally say in our flesh is the perfect fit because it was easy. God doesn't always work that way. God's person may be used by God to bring about what we would consider difficulties and problems. God's will doesn't mean that the end result is always easy. The end result will always be good, perfect, and acceptable, according to Romans 12. But sometimes God's will involves suffering, hardship, and correction. Fourth point, and I'm almost done. It's okay to assume it's God's leading when the act and the motive is good and glorifying to God. And in that, I mean it will be consistent with Scripture. This is the way we live life. Because God doesn't speak to every particular issue. What color should I paint my car? whether I should get the hell damage fixed. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. But he wants us to love him with all of our minds and not just live off of impressions. So he wants us to think. He wants us to, to, to assess. He wants us to look at the pros and cons while being submissive to his spirit. This is how life is lived. But even in assuming that it is God's will because it is for the good of others ministering to them. It is to the glory of God and not for our own glory, and it's not inconsistent with God's word. It still might not be the Lord's will. David wanted to build a temple. What could be wrong with that? Nothing wrong with it. In fact, God will say to his son, you're going to build a temple. But David couldn't build it. God said, good idea, you're the wrong guy. You've shed too much blood. I want a temple built, just not by you. So it was the right idea, right motive. Everything about it was good. Wrong guy doing it. So it wasn't God's will for David. It was God's will for Solomon. It might be the wrong time. I often say this to young couples that are thinking about getting married. Or even when they just, you know, start getting serious with each other. There's two things going on here. Is this God's will? 
Is this the person he wants you to date, the person he wants you to marry? And secondly, is it now that he wants you to do this? One of the most godly people I know. Fine, exemplary marriage. And he told me, he says, we got married a year too early. We jumped the gun. We got ahead of God. I was still in college. And I couldn't, and there was lots of things that, that were not in place. But we knew God wanted us to marry each other, and we didn't wait. We jumped the gun. It may be the right, it may be God's will, but it might be the wrong time. There's always more than one thing to consider. And finally, mind the checks. Because it could be God's glorified, it's a good decision. Word of God is not violated, but God is giving a check. That's what the old mystics used to say. I'm not a mystic. I remember in seminary, a professor said one time, and it kind of roiled me a little bit, mysticism begins in a mist, ends in schism, and has I in the center. But sometimes when we talk about the things of the Spirit, which we do not fully understand. And we never will, because he is God. And he is bigger than we are. Who can understand the workings of God, Scripture says? We're not going to understand all the ways God works. But just because we don't understand it doesn't mean he's not working. Just because I can't fully explain it doesn't mean that God hasn't done it. And sometimes when we just don't know how to explain this whole idea of God communicating to people, calling people, setting people aside. How does he do that? Does he do that? Just because I can't explain it and fully understand it doesn't mean I have to call it mysticism. There is a mystery to our faith. I think it was C.S. Lewis said that if there's no mystery to our faith, then why would we even believe in him? We would expect that an infinite God be beyond anything that we could fully comprehend or grasp. And be able to do that which we can't fully explain. It is a personal relationship with a living God who loves us and is intimately acquainted with all our ways. And directs the steps of our paths. And he wants us to live in that vital relationship with us. Wherein I believe, like Samuel, we can hear from God. And not be a people that, like Eli, are so committed to doing things as they want to do that God has to find somebody else to speak through. I'll close this in prayer.